you, Pastor John. We are in Colossians chapter 1 in the New Testament. If you would like to turn there in your Bibles, Colossians chapter 1. Historically, Satan has opposed the church since day one. Nothing new under the sun. You've experienced that right up to the present time, haven't you? But for the first 330 or so years up until the time of Constantine, he sought to wipe out the church with outward persecution by jailing Christians and feeding them to the wild animals, incarcerating them. But he, it took him three and a half centuries to find that out, but he found it's just making the church bigger and stronger. It's not working. That's when he decided to switch tactics. Have you ever heard that adage before, if you can't beat them, join them? That's what Satan did. That's what Satan has done. He's infiltrated the church historically, polluted it from the inside out through false teaching, heretical doctrine, demeaning the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we find in, in approaching the Colossian epistle is that there was a growing movement within early Christianity that was much later called Gnosticism, and its devotees were called Gnostics from the Greek word which means knowledge. They didn't mean just knowledge. They said, if you join our club, we have special knowledge. We are better than the church next door. We've got the real insight as to the holy stuff. And that sort of spiritual snobbery has been around since. Calling themselves Gnostics, you know what they were really calling themselves in our vernacular? The really intelligent ones. Well, nobody wanted to be thought a dummy spiritually, so that intellectual snobbery appealed to people looking for more than just common and ordinary Christianity. They were disappointed and disillusioned and dissatisfied with what they considered rude and simple Christianity. So they thought to jazz it up. Churches still do that today. Word of God is not enough. We need smoke pots and lasers and big TV screens and slick presentations and things to impress your flesh. Sound familiar? You probably go home after Sunday afternoons and turn on religious broadcasting and watch those kind of churches. And you go, wow, how many millions of dollars did they put into that? What they sought to do, these heretics was they sought to bring Christian thinking more in line to the philosophical principles of the world. They didn't care what Scripture said. They could use it for their own purposes by twisting it, by deprecating and tearing down the person of, of Jesus Christ. But see if this sounds familiar. The heresy in, in that first century placed more emphasis on feelings than the Word of God. Of course, that's never happened to you. Know any people like that? Oh, I just feel that God was doing X, Y, and Z. What does the Word of God say? Well, I don't know what the Word of God says, but I really feel like that is the test of whether it's God or not. But they placed such undue emphasis on feelings and this whole idea of, well, that's fine. You're just a plebeian Christian, but join our club, and we've got the real secret Deep secrets of God. Ooh. Subjective personal experiences. God told me in a dream and a vision. And everybody hangs on their word, but we don't know if they had a dream or a vision or indigestion. Was it a dream or was it a satanic nightmare with a Satan masquerading as an angel of light? Oh, but I feel... Interesting, the word feelings isn't mentioned in the New Testament, and we place so much emphasis on it in our daily walk. Well, I prayed this morning, but I didn't feel <clears throat> like God was listening. I read the Word of God, but I didn't feel like I got anything out of it, so I'm, I'm going to stop reading the Bible. Is that what the Bible says? Stick with it if you feel like it or you get goosebumps when you read 
They placed way too much emphasis on dreams and visions and prophecies, more so than the Word of God. You must confirm as a Christian everything you experience by the Word of God. Just because it feels good or you think it's spiritual doesn't tell you anything about its origins. Satan is a spiritual being well able to deceive as he sees fit. The only sift we have to see whether it's of Satan or God is the Word of God. Not my feelings or what I think about it. Not even the original languages or history. What does the Word of God say? But the church today is less and less in the Word of God every day. We own more Bibles in America than at any other point in time in our history, and those Bibles are read less today than at any other point in time in our history. It is not the thing sitting on your coffee table that's going to give meaning and purpose and direction to your life. It's opening up the Word of God and seeing it for the Word of God that it is, able to speak to us, able to change us. But that's how you have to approach it. Leave your feelings behind. This is the Word of God. It is God speaking to you if you'll let Him. Well, I didn't feel like that. Stop, stop, stop with the Word. Ixnay that word, feeling. Leave it for when you need Pepto-Bismol or something. That has a lot more to do with feelings. This is the Word of God. I had a fascinating conversation this week with chat GPT. Do you know what that is? Yeah, it's artificial intelligence. You know when I asked it? Who is Jesus Christ? The answer, well, some religions say this and that and that. And, and so I, I wrote back and I said, apart from feelings, historically and actually and factually, who is the historical person, Jesus Christ? You know what AI said back to me? Thank you for the correction. What I just told AI is this has nothing to do with feelings. AI didn't know that, so I thought it was beneficial to tell AI how stupid you are. This has nothing to do with feelings, it has to do with facts. And AI responded and said, you are absolutely right, it is the facts and the history and the knowledge that stands alone, and how people interpret that is a matter of religion and feelings. You're right, why don't we just stick with the facts? Stick with the Word of God. Fascinating conversation. I'd never had an intelligent conversation with a dumb robot before, but it was quite the experience. I, I rather enjoyed it, especially when it said, you're right. It's not a matter of feelings. Don't place so much emphasis on feelings because someday you're going to wake up and you say, I don't feel like reading my Bible today. Someday you're going to wake up and say, well, I don't feel like going to church. And Satan knows if he can keep you out of the Word of God, out of prayer, and out of church for one week, it's easier to keep you out the next week, and the next, and the next, and the next. And pretty soon, you're not in church, or in the Word of God, or in prayer, or in fellowship at all. And somehow or another, you look back and you go, how did I get where I'm at? Drifting. Drifting. You lost sight of the anchor of your faith, which is the Word of God the person of Jesus Christ. And all of these things are, have nothing to do with feelings and everything to do with relationship, intimacy with the God of the universe and the Son that He sent to save us from our sins. That's a relationship that involves you and me inputting into that relationship. Suppose those of you who are married had a spouse that never talked to you. What kind of marriage is that? You'd be in my office in six weeks saying, he needs help. She needs help. Tell him to straighten up. And, you know, we would. <laughs> we'd, we'd help you with that. But the bottom line is a, a relationship by nature has to be bilateral, two-sided. God speaks to me how through his word. In times of prayer, by the working person of his Holy Spirit, sometimes through my circumstances, sometimes through other Christians. But I need God to input into my life. And there is no surer input no more infallible input than the Word of God. I don't have to worry about, well, is this text accurate? We know what the Greek text says. 
we know what it says. And thank God there are plenty of great translations out there today. They're good translations, so don't get in arguments about silly stuff. There's only two translations you have to stay away from. The Jehovah's Witnesses New World Translation. Stay away from the Book of Mormon, too. Those, you stay away from the cults, uh, the rest of the Bibles will, will serve you well. I don't care what version you read. Read the one that you can understand. There's so many good translations out there today. The ideas of this heresy that had crept into the church... By the way, can I just say this? All heresies start in the church by Christians. Follow me on that? All heresies in the church for the last 2,000 years have been started in the church by Christians. Satan knows that if he can get a foothold in there, just a foothold, he can widen that breach over time by getting people to argue over things that don't matter. Like feelings, you know, secret knowledge or subjective personal experiences. So to counter this heresy that was diminishing the Lord Jesus Christ, much like the cults do today. Some of the cults teach you, well, when you, if you do things right in this world, in the next world, you can be God over your own planet. Uh, excuse me, there's only one God. When a cult teaches me that, that Satan and Jesus are brothers, are you serious? Walk away. If they give you one of their books, burn them. Great way to start fireplace fires. I love starting in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1, if you're not there already. I quite frankly was surprised at how well the New Living Translation put these opening two verses. It really captures the thought behind it and explains it better than I ever could. I want you to look at verse 15, regardless of translation that you have, but the NLT puts it this way, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Just, you can just park there for a long time. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. That's why Jesus could say to his followers, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is God. He's not to be diminished. He is the only begotten Son of God who came, died for our sins, and rose again. The NLT continues, he existed before anything else was created and is supreme over all creation, for through him, God created everything. This is truth, independent of feelings. In the heavenly realms, he created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the, thing, the things that we can see and the things we can't. Isn't it interesting that astrophysicists and astronomers today tell us that it is probable that in their humble opinion that the vast amount of the universe, most of it is up to 90, 95% dark matter that you can't see. Maybe that's the spiritual realm. You can't see with your eyes, but you can enter that spiritual realm through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. Understand that. Paul has just told us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit why God is doing what he does. Everything that's been created was created for him and his purposes. Do you get that? In other words, he is God and none of us are. The smartest thing we could do is to put our agenda subservient to his and say, not my will but yours be done. You can't pray better than that. That's what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Surrender. What that means is I surrender. I'm not proud. I'm not arrogant. I don't tell God what I want or the direction that I want him to go in my life. I submit to his perfect will. So these opening five verses from 15 to 20 really lift up and exalt Jesus Christ versus this Colossian heresy that marginalized him. I love the way Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 puts it. The sun is the radiance, the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact representation 
the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his power. That word in the Greek, the exact representation, the Greek word is the word character. That's exactly how it's pronounced in Greek. You can go home this afternoon and impress your friends with your knowledge of Koine Greek and say, you want me to teach you Greek? Character. Question is, do you have it? Jesus possessed 100% of all of God's character, his nature. Character, it's where we get our word character from. The Greek word denotes an exact impression, likeness, which also reflects inner character, which is how we use the word today. But originally, the word character was a tool that was used for engraving. Then it came to mean a die or a mold that they would use to stamp out coins in the Roman Empire. Finally, it stood for a stamp used to impress coins or seals, but in each case, the stamp conveyed the reality behind the image. In other words, just like stamping coins, each one is identical. That was the, the very point of it. So when, if you will, Jesus carried the imprint of God, it was a perfect representation of his heavenly Father. It is indeed God in flesh. And that's really important because why did a representative, a character of God have to be made? Because God is invisible. No one has seen God, Scripture tells us in John 1.18. And Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God and became God-man, then he reflects and reveals the glory of God. When it says in here in verse 15 of Colossians 1, he is the image, that's a different word, called icon. It's where we get our word icon, but it, again, is an exact representation of the original, a mirror-like representation. It's identical in resemblance, like 3D additive laser printers. I don't know if you have a 3D laser printer. If I ever thought I could afford it, it would be fun to make toys on those, wouldn't it? Make toys for your grandkids or something else like that. But they, uh, these 3D printers uh, in something called direct metal laser centering, or DMLS, is a 3D printing technology that uses lasers to fuse together powdered metals into functional prototypes that don't have to be tested. They just, once it's prototyped and made, they just put it on board the aircraft. The tolerances are that perfect, that exacting, because in the aerospace world, you can't say, eh, whatever, quarter inch here, quarter inch. That's not the way that works when you're putting people into orbit or the earth or the head to the moon. That, that's not good enough. So when they make a part using this latest technology, it is not similar to the designer's plans. It's identical. There isn't any difference. Jesus is God. He is 100% divine. He carries the image of God because he is God in flesh. When you use the word icon, it exactly reflects its source directly, and that's what Jesus is. He's the supreme expression of the Godhead, an exact representation. He is the image, the exact image of the invisible God. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. That's important. When we look at the previous book that we had been through in Philippians chapter 2, it says your attitude should be, that, should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, Morphe, where we get the word metamorphosis, the very form, shape, outward appearance, the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made of himself nothing, taking on, again, the very nature of a servant, Jesus did, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. That's your job and mine. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus. The heretics that had invaded the church were proud 
and arrogant and esteem themselves as the keepers of supreme knowledge. That's arrogant. That's prideful. Such things mark the first sin that was ever created in the universe when Satan did that. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, someday every knee is going to bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews 1.3 tells us the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Again, character is that unique word that is used there. And Jesus would tell His disciples in John 14.9, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. You can't get around that, although the cults diminish the work in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture, if you stay in Scripture, He is consistently elevated above all things that He has created. Jesus made the same claim to His eternality time and time again. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. Whoa, he's claiming to be God to a Jewish audience. How do I know that? Because at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. They wanted to stone him death for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God? It's not blasphemy if it's true. And it was. So Jesus, nobody else said that in the Bible. Nobody else is God in flesh appearing. Jesus prayed in John 17, 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Before the world began, Jesus was right there with the Father. That is why we believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Revelation 22, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Mm. Don't get confused in verse 15 if, if you see the word firstborn and you think, what, is he just the oldest of a whole mess of kids that God had? No, that, that doesn't, isn't what the original language means at all. Prototokos is the Greek term. It's where we get our word prototype, and it refers to priority of position rather than birth or origin. In other words, Jesus has priority above everything because he created everything. It's not firstborn in the sense of my, my dog had a litter of pups and this was the first one, like Jesus was born the first of, of many sons. No, 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 no. He is over all because he has priority above all things. You see that kind of thinking in, in Psalms 89 and verse 27 where it says, I will also appoint him, the Messiah, my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. He is over them. It is not that he was firstborn like one among many sons. It is that he has priority over all of them. He's over all of the kings. And you see that kind of parallel passage in, in John 1, 8, 1, verses 1 through 18. I'll, we'll get to that here in just a second. But Jesus simply has priority over all creation, and that is described below, verse 16. For by him all things were created. Stop there. Didn't it say in Genesis 1-1 that in the beginning God created? If you don't believe in a triune God, you now have two gods. But if Jesus is God, then he was the agent by which God created the entire universe. I have no problem with that. If Jesus is God, if he is the second member of the Trinity, I have no problem at all with Genesis saying in the beginning God created, and here in Colossians it says Jesus created. If Jesus is God, that presents you no difficulties whatsoever. He has priority over all creation in that he came before all things. He created all things. And verse 17 tells us all things hold together by his will. You just want to think about that for a second. All, the whole universe? 
I googled today, how many planets are there in the universe? They have no idea. The numbers went anywhere from 2 trillion to 700 quintillion. Well, which is it? They're only separated by, by orders of magnitude. In other words, they have no idea. They have no idea. But when it says that Jesus holds everything together, understand that the permanence of this universe, its current rate of expansion, it rests on Christ more than the laws of physics. Physics can't explain God. You know... I had a little exercise in this. The year was 1984. Me and Fred Flintstone were going to the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. I know this was before most of you were born, but bear with me. The head of the physics department, I was, I was finishing my pre-med degree there, the head of the physics department was a wonderful Jewish man by the name of Dr. Levinson. He was the head, the chair of the physics department. And one time in class, we had been going over uh, the atomic chart, and I, and I said, Dr. Levinson, uranium has, the atomic number is 92, plutonium 94. These are stable radioactive materials. Now, you told us last semester that uranium and plutonium have 92 and 94 protons in the nucleus, all of them with a positive charge. He goes, yeah. And I said, but you told us last semester, positive charges repel each other. What holds them together? It's a stable radioisotope. What holds it together? There's 94 or 92 of these huge protons in the middle of it, positively charged. If opposites attract, or opposites attract and like charges repel, how come that atom doesn't fly apart? Why is it stable? I said, I, I've thought this through a little bit. It's, there are also an equal number of neutrons inside, but they possess no charge. Thus, they can't be holding it together. It's surrounded by orbiting electrons zipping around the outside, but they don't possess the mass charge or density to be able to hold that nucleus together. So, Dr. Levinson, my question is simple. What holds these atoms together? Dr. Levinson, the smartest physicist I ever met said this, and I quote, I don't know. <laughs> now, we're in this big amphitheater with several hundred students there, and the man just, you know, and he said, I don't know. Physics does not have the answer. And, and in, in a moment of either sheer idiocy on my part or uh, or maybe it was the Holy Spirit prompted me to say, the Bible tells us. And you could have heard a pin drop in the auditorium. This was a, I didn't plan any of this. It was not my desire to go to UCCS and start a fight with the head of the physics department. That was the last. I'm just trying to get an A so I can go to medical school. You know, uh, what holds them together? And I took him to this very passage. In verse 17, Jesus, he, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So someday, <laughs> the amazing thing to me, you know, you know what, if you study nuclear explosions, and I don't know why in the world you would, but what they tell us is the amount of energy released in a nuclear explosion is the same amount of energy that it takes to hold all of those atoms together. When you split it apart, it simply releases all of that inherent energy within that, that nuclear particle. And so the fact that Jesus holds every single atom in the universe together... Every single one. Here's the most remarkable thing at all. Second Peter says someday he's going to let go. He's going to, where does it say that? I'm glad you asked. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. Stop. The only way you can destroy a discrete element of any kind 
is through nuclear fission. If you don't split the atom, you haven't destroyed the element. If I gave you a hammer and said, beat on that chair until it's down to the atoms, you can't beat it any further than so many atoms of cloth or steel or plastic or whatever. But the only way you can destroy the individual discrete atoms themselves is through a thermonuclear fission process that splits the atom. And then it releases a lot of energy. And Peter <laughs> says, yeah, I heard a loud noise. Oh boy, that's a master of understatement, a thermonuclear explosion of every single atom simultaneously in the universe. I cannot fathom that. If you tell me you can fathom that, mm, no, you can't. <laughs> no, you can't. Do you know how much fissionable material it takes to make a plutonium bomb, a hydrogen bomb? Something smaller than a basketball. That's all it... Now imagine every single atom in the entire universe going up in the mother of all thermonuclear explosions. Whew. Oh my. Jesus has been holding it together. Thank you, Jesus. If I never said thank you that you haven't dissolved the atoms in the chair that I'm sitting on, thank you, Lord. That someday all of those elements, the elements, this is a fisherman speaking. What's he, know about, what's he know about physics, nuclear particle physics? Absolutely nothing. What does God know about nuclear particle physics? Absolutely everything. So he reveals it to the fishermen. These elements, the very elements themselves, will be destroyed by fire and the earth, and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything is going to be destroyed in this way, here's a good question. What kind of lives ought you to be living? Now that, if, if you... This whole, this whole discussion is to put you in the place where you are now experiencing the fear of the Lord. The incredible power that he possesses to hold every single atom in the universe together. And man has just discovered since 1944 how to split that atom. And now we think we're all that? Really? What kind of people ought you to be? Well, Peter answers that rhetorical question for us. You ought to live holy and godly lives, are you? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed its coming. How do you speed the coming of the day of the Lord? By living holy and godly lives. He just explained that to us. Are you doing that? If you are not doing that, you could be holding up the process. I don't want to find out that you are the one that's holding up the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dog, I'm telling you. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements themselves will melt in the heat. Peter, this fisherman, is describing a thermonuclear reaction that mankind didn't discover until the mid-40s. God knew it all along. That's God who loves you. That's a God who's got your past, present, and future already planned out. A God who simply wants you to bow the knee. If not now, then someday when we stand before his judgment throne, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that in fact Jesus Christ is God. But in keeping with his promises, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to all this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Man, I am so looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he have to destroy the earth and the entire universe? Why? Sin. It's been tainted with sin. So God says, then I will eradicate all sin, everything tainted with sin, and I will start over. Maybe there'll be a new atomic chart. That'd be interesting. I have no idea what the future holds, but I know who holds the future, and, and I am good with that. Look at verse 18 back in Colossians 1. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is the head of the church, not the pastors, not the elders, not the deacons, board or congregational uh, voters in the church, not King James, the first who, according to the Anglicans, was the head of the church. 
driving pilgrims to these shores that declared King James I was not the head of the church. Jesus Christ was. And that's the foundation of the United States of America. It was founded upon the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, as the Bible declares. The president of the United States of America is not the head of the church. The Anglican church, they still say the head of the state in England is the head of, of the church. But Jesus is the head of the church, and we know that. Not even the Pope is the head of the church. Jesus is. Christ has priority in time and rank and power. In fact, that, that's what it means to be Lord, as he's called there throughout Scripture. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all. Say all. Jesus isn't a small slice of God. He is God in flesh. The incarnation became a necessity as soon as mankind sinned. God is spirit. Those that worship him must worship him in spirit. And the truth, the problem is you can't nail a spirit to the cross. So as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, it necessitated a day and a time that God would put on human flesh and come and hang on a cross to pay the price that your sins and mine deserved. That's why Jesus had to come. Galatians says he came in the fullness of time. He will come in the fullness of time when he comes again. A word that's used there in verse 19. God was pleased to have all his fullness. That was a Gnostic buzzword in the first century. But Paul says the real fullness is only found in Christ Jesus. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The only reason that the Father sent the Son to earth was so that you and I might be reconciled to him. Sin had put distance in the relationship. Have you ever sinned? Then you need somebody to make up that gap. His name is Jesus. You can't save yourself because God's standard, listen carefully, God's standard is perfection. That's why Jesus one time in his early ministry said, you, 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 be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody want to raise their hand and say, yep, I can meet that standard? None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect, which is why we all need Jesus Christ. That's why God sent his son and allowed him the indignity of being crucified and mocked and beaten so that your sins and mine might be removed and that we could be in total and perfect fellowship and harmony with God. That's why he did that. He loves you. God didn't send his son because he had to. Think about that. In fact, quite frankly, I'm really surprised God didn't say, where's my eraser? I think I'm just going to just take all of this off. We're just going to start all over. But he sent his son to redeem us, and that is to me an amazing Active grace. In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God dwelt. So when he died, he could live a perfect life and die for my sins. Verse 21 tells us what the church's prior position was before the coming of Christ. And it begs the question, what's your condition today? Look at verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That's who you were. That's why God had to send his son. Because we have an old nature that is selfish and demands its own way. And I am not here to rub your nose in your sins. It is sufficient to say we have all, all fallen short the glory of God. Can you raise your hand and just say amen? We have all fallen short. That's why we need Jesus. And that's why Jesus came. It should humble you to say, man, I'm not perfect, God. It should humble you to say, I need a Savior because I can't save myself. If your standard is perfection, I don't meet the standard, Lord. 
That's why he sent his son who did meet that standard. He kept a law we never could. He lived a perfect life. Jesus one time, this is the most bold statement I ever heard in the whole Bible. One time Jesus asked his enemies, which of you can accuse me of one single sin? Don't try that. Don't go to work. Don't go home this morning and say, honey, can you accuse me of one single sin from the womb to the tomb? Can you find any fault whatsoever with me ever at any time in my life? It's not a question you want to ask because you know you're guilty. You know you're guilty. We all fall short. Jesus came and met the standard that God required. So when he died on the cross, it wasn't to pay for his sins. We know the wages of sin is death. He died on the cross to pay the penalty my sins and yours deserved. And then backing up his claim to be the only begotten son of God, he rose from the dead. Really? How about Muhammad? He rise from the dead? Yeah, no. Buddha? No. But he did leave behind a tooth that people are still worshiping over in India. I got a tooth you can worship. <laughs> you think, how silly can mankind be? But if you reject the one true living God, you'll buy into any kind of fallacy, heresy, false teaching. This is the church's previous position in Christ Jesus in verse 21. But if your behavior is still evil, then you're still alienated from God. God doesn't choose anybody to go to hell. People choose hell for themselves by rejecting to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the only sacrifice God has for any of us. But we condemn ourselves to hell. As God, because he created us with a free will, simply gives us what we want. God says, you don't want me in your life, I'll send you to a place where I am not. And that's what hell is. There is no hope, there is no love, there is no relief, there's nothing. No God. I, I, I praise God in heaven for his plan to pay the price that my sins deserve by laying my sins upon the back of his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. I want to pause there for a second, although the Greek sentence does not stop there. I need to stop there just because I, I want to say <laughs> thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for me. Right here, right now, I am reconciled to God. Right here, right now, in his eyes, I am holy. I am without spot, without blemish. He's the only one in the universe that sees me that way. Everybody else I know is quick to point out my faults. Like, you know them better than me? God is our judge, and in love and grace and mercy, he has sent his sons so that we would not be judged in the future. I am reconciled. I am holy. I am without spot and blemish in his sight and free from accusation. But as I said, the sentence does not stop there. Look at verse 23. What's the first word of verse 23? If, circle it. Highlight it. It's a conditional statement. The first part in verse 22 only happens if you do this part. In other words, God has done his part. This is yours. You're saved by grace. You're kept by grace. But it requires that we abide in Christ. That means live with him, dwell with him constantly, consistently, in an ongoing fashion. It's a first-class conditional statement. You being reconciled in all of this, the rest of this, is totally dependent upon your continuing to abide in Christ. Look at verse 23. If you continuously continue in your faith, that's faithful to the voice, tense, and mood of the original language, if. To me, it's the most sobering word in the Bible. It reminds me of our responsibility. I must continue in my faith. 
I can't say, well, you know, I got baptized when I was a kid. I had holy water sprinkled on me, went through communion or confession or catechism or was baptized or joined a church. None of that really matters. Are you abiding in Christ right here, right now? Do you love him? Do you trust him? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you filled with his Holy Spirit? Are you striving to live a life that's pleasing to him? That's what's required of us. That's what marks you as a Christian. You think differently than the world. Your priorities are different than the world. You don't live for you. You don't live for the world. You live for him. Doesn't it say previously we read, all things were created by him and for him? That's why you live and breathe. Hmm. And you thought it was so you could live a life of happiness and wealth and luxury. Not so much. Not so much. Continue in your faith, verse 23, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. He's telling these people that are tempted to follow these Gnostics, stay away from those guys. Don't let them lead you away from the simplicity of trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't buy into their special knowledge. Don't buy into, oh, I had a dream, I had a vision. Really, it doesn't square with the Word of God. Well, yeah, I know, but God told me. Boy, as soon as I hear that coming out of somebody's mouth, red flags go off all over the place. Like you're the exception to the rules in God's Word? Are you kidding me? But God told me, and I've heard that many times out of the mouths of Christians. You can only say, thus saith the Lord, if you can quote Scripture. You may be of the impression that God did this or spoke to you or gave you a dream, and it may well have been, but you hang your hat on the Word of God and the work in person of the Lord Jesus Christ, not on what you think or feel or whatever dream or vision you had. People can get it wrong. Have you noticed that? People ever walked up to you and given you a prophecy and it didn't come to pass? Yeah. The Word of God is sure. It never fails. I don't have to wonder, is this God or not, when I open up His Word. It tells me what my job is as a pastor. Once we move on from verse 23, we are going to be reconciled to God, presented in His sight as holy, without blemish, free from accusation, if we continue in our faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become the servant. Ah, servant. Your pastors in this church are not your bosses. They are not your spiritual superiors. They are your servants. If I can help you, I will. If I can encourage you, I will. I am nobody's boss. My prayers are not more effective than anyone else's in this room. I'm just a man called to a unique calling probably to keep me from sin. I don't know what it's doing for you, but I'm glad he called me to the ministry because I do not sin nearly as much as I used to when I was a punk kid. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, verse 24, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. In other words, Jesus was whipped and beaten and flogged and rejected, and I walk in his footsteps, and I'm enduring the same stuff. It, today, it is not popular to be a Christian. You have two choices. Clam up, and what, become a Clairol Christian? Only your hairdresser knows for sure. Or realize that you are filling up in yourself what's lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Why? Because in this world he had tribulation. And we walk in his footsteps. For the sake of his body, which is the church, in verse 25 reaffirms my job description. I have become, Paul says, its servant, the church's servant, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. That's my job. It's not to make you happy. It's not to keep you entertained. 
It is my job to tell you the Word of God in all of its fullness. That means Old Testament, Psalms and Proverbs, and New Testament. We will cover it all, and we have many times in the history of this church. Stick around. We're going to get through every book of the Bible, every verse, every difficulty, and have all of those questions answered for you. But you got to stick around because it takes time. But my job is to present to you the Word of God in its fullness. Verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. And there, that mystery word is another buzzword of the Gnostics, but it's a mystery in the sense that the church was not clearly seen in the Old Testament. Hints of the Gentile inclusion into the promises of Israel were hinted at, Isaiah, that the Messiah would be a light unto the Gentiles. Things like that. We've got hints of that. But by and large, the church was a mystery. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit personally indwelling every single Christian was a bit of a mystery in the Old Testament, but becomes radically clear, and it's now been disclosed to the saints, as verse 26 tells us. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, that's you and me, I'm not Jewish by birth, I'm Gentile through and through. To make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What's the, what's the, the mystery that he's talking about? That someday God was going to personally indwell his people. Didn't see that coming. Didn't see that clearly in the Old Testament. But Christ in you is the hope of glory. That God would personally indwell you by the work and person of his Holy Spirit is radical. There is no other religion that offers anything like that on the face of the earth, nor has there ever been that God now inhabits the praises of his people. His Holy Spirit fills the hearts of his people. And it is our hope of glory when Christ comes back. My job is to proclaim him, admonish, and teach everyone with wisdom because my goal is to present all of you perfect in Christ Jesus. And you go, perfect? we got a long ways to go, Pastor Jim. How much time do you have? Well, the word perfect can also mean mature or complete or whole. That's my job. It's his job. He's already declared you perfect if you're a Christian. But there's an ongoing process of conforming us day in and day out to the image of Christ. That's an ongoing work that will keep on going until Christ comes back. And that's why I teach. That's why I admonish. I'm not here to step on your toes. If I have ever offended you, I apologize with all that is within me. It's never been my intention to offend anybody, but I cannot compromise the Word of God. I cannot. I must not. But it was never my intention to step on your toes or anyone else's. I cringe inside when people tell me that I have done that. Boy, you sure stepped on my toes today, Pastor Jim. There's a part of me inside that dies. Because that wasn't my intention. You need to know this. I love you. I want God's very best for you. And that's why I teach what I teach and preach what I preach. But I love you too much to intentionally offend any one of you. That's not never, it's never been my intention. But I must stand on the word of God. I believe that I will be answerable to him someday for what I taught and what the Word of God says. You will be held accountable for what you did with the truth that was proclaimed to you. Did it change you? Did you internalize it? Did you take it home? I just want to present you perfect, whole, complete, mature in His sight. And that's what Paul says as he wraps up in verse 28. We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Do you know what the difference is between admonishing and teaching? Teaching you is the impartation of facts. Admonishment is when I put my foot to your bottom. It's a nudge. It's a gentle reminder to say, do it. Do it. I can teach you facts. That's teaching. But the impartation of facts doesn't change anybody. But when I admonish you to put into practice the things that you've learned, that's when it becomes life-changing. Only you can do that now. Only you can do that. So that we may present everyone perfect, mature, whole, complete in Christ. Verse 29, to this end, Paul says, I labor. 
Hmm. Struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Do you see the balance there between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty? I work with everything that is within me. I will go home this afternoon and I will lay down and take a nap. Why? Because I'm old? Yes, but there's another reason as well. Because doing the work of God can be physically and spiritually exhausting. If I do it right, I go home exhausted. I labor, struggling with all his energy. I labor, but it's his energy that supports and strengthens and keeps me going. But I see God's sovereignty and my responsibility kind of hand in hand in this, in this closing. I labor, but it's all with his energy. I think that's the miracle. That's, that's the mystery of a successful Christian walk with the Lord. You work hard, and he helps you. You pray, and he answers. You seek and knock. He answers the door, and you find him. Me and God yoked together. Isn't that what Jesus said? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest under your souls. Now, that's an amazing dichotomy. I put on an ox yoke. I pull this plow behind me, and then Jesus says, and I'll give you rest. What? Well, which is it? We're pulling the plow or we're resting? Can I lay down and take a nap? Yes, there's a time and a place for that. But I'm laboring with all of his energy that is with, at work within me. The energy of God is just as available to you this morning. The power to overcome sin. The power to overcome depression and discouragement. The power that says, I can do this. I can live for Christ till I hear the trumpet sound and he calls me home. I can do this with his power that is at work within me. How do I get it inside me? Yeah, hello. The word of God, prayer, seek, you shall find. This ain't rocket science. You don't have to know anything about nuclear physics to be able to do this. What do I expect you to do with this this morning? Do it. Just do it. Questions? Let's stand and close in prayer. You're a good God, and you've done things for me that I never deserved. That's why you call it grace. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I couldn't pay for it. You've given me the righteousness of your own Son. You, Lord Jesus, only begotten Son of God, you put on flesh so you could come and identify with me in all of my weaknesses and take spikes that rightfully should have belonged to me. Nails in your hands and feet and a spear wound in your side. A crown of thorns laid upon you and your blood shed so that mine might be spared. How gracious you are, how merciful, how kind, how loving. And yet we have our responsibility in this relationship. As Colossians says, if we continuously continue in the faith as we were taught. Help us to do that, Lord. It's easy to get lazy. We get tired sometimes. The world is filled with endless, endless distraction. And I can go home this afternoon and turn on the TV and veg. Or I can think about the things that you have said to the church this morning. Maybe I can open up to... Colossians chapter 1 and revisit this and read it as slowly as I can and understand its personal implications for me. Touch every heart in this building, Lord. Make us the people that you want us to be. We want to do you proud these last days. The world is on a path to destruction. It appears to have no hope and its morals and values change every single day to the point of absurdity. People have no idea if they're men, women, or something in between on some continuum. I, these are crazy times, Lord. So we look to you to be the anchor of our lives. Your word to speak life to us as often as we open the book. Love you with all of my heart, Lord. And if I have done anything, if I have said anything that did not well represent you, forgive me, Father, in Jesus' precious name. 
If there is a sin of omission, may it not be found in this congregation. May we not omit a single word of this precious text that we've read. May we live it. May we depend upon you. May we seek your face earnestly these last days, Lord. And maybe just turn off the TV. Maybe just turn away from the media and the cell phones to just spend time talking to you and praying and seeking your face and being conformed to the image of your Son. Here and now, we lay our lives down afresh. We present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. We are your servants, thankful for our salvation. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for me. Abide in me and help me to abide in you. In Jesus' name, heaven.